This is Monica Perez here again today with a returning guest, a man of intelligence and experience and integrity who fights the good fight and also tells a good story. So it's always a pleasure to hang out with Anthony Raimondo, and he is a dive master. So strap on your tanks and we are gonna go deep today on Marbury v. Madison and plea bargains, which people might think is like too arcane legal stuff, but we're gonna make it really interesting. So thanks Anthony for being here. Hello and how are you? I'm good, thank you for having me again. So uh, so here's the thing, um, you and I agree on a lot and I feel like uh, we'll probably agree on this, but I've never asked you about your um, opinions on plea bargains. I mean, I've asked you, but I haven't heard them. And the Marbury v. Madison stuff, and we're going to go real deep on, but I just want to get like a cursory a viewpoint. To me, I feel like if if pl plea bargains were not allowed, then we wouldn't even be able to have all of these made up laws. And it might just be better. Maybe that's the true nature of due process. And I mean, like jury trial for everything from involuntary commitment to hospitals, like uh, mental institutions to losing your gun rights. I want a unanimous verdict from a jury of my peers for everything. And we can get into that. But what's your like first pass on that? Well, I agree with you on that generally in the sense that I think getting rid of plea bargains would accomplish two things that I see as a positive. The first is it would really test our commitment to our criminal justice process. And what I mean by that is no plea bargains would absolutely overwhelm the existing system because there's there forget putting money into the system. There aren't enough jurors to try cases for everything that we have. So See, but I like district I do too. I, mean, I think district attorneys would be forced then to really only proceed with cases that not only truly mattered, but where they were absolutely convinced of guilt and that the expenditure of time and resources was justified because pursuing case A means you have to let case B go. Okay. The other part of it is, and this is something I saw, by the way, that part of it, as well as this next part of it, are things I saw personally in my time as a public defender. I would say the vast majority of plea bargains are extracted by means of extortion, not by voluntary choice. Wow, yes, I wanna make a comment on that. I That's my impression too. And just theoretically, it's a moral hazard because they have, what, what I find to be morally hazardous is these like layers and layers of crimes from one actus reus, if you will. So there's one act, they can call it like five different crimes, they can call it a federal crime and a state crime, and then they can string together and say, like, you will have consecutive sentences. So an example is Tommy Chong went to jail for a crime he wasn't even accused of. They entrapped his son. They said they were going to um, potentially send his wife and son to jail for 99 years for selling a decorative bong across straight lines, which they were ab state lines, which they were absolutely coerced into doing. And they told Tommy Chong that he could plea to the plead guilty to those crimes, which he was not even accused of, and spend a year in jail as a, you know, a trophy for these people. And I feel like the moral hazard is that they pile on all of these um, sentences and they say, like, even if you're totally innocent, are you willing to risk 
you can plea out for a guilty sentence and one year in jail, or you can risk 99 years. Like even guilty people would plea to that. No. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes even beyond that. I mean, the, the, it's not a moral hazard. It's an immoral reality. Hazard suggests it's a risk. It's not a risk. It's a reality. For one thing, the whole plea bargain process encourages prosecutors to overcharge people, to charge people with offenses that they can't possibly prove or that are far more severe than the facts justify. Because the way it works for practical purposes, so this is what I experienced as a public defender. As a defense attorney, you walk into court for the first time, you meet your client for the first time. They're either out of custody, either on their own recognizance or on bail, and they're walking to the court and they're scared about what's going to happen to them. Or they're sitting in a jury box in chains in a jail uniform because they're in custody. And the first thing you receive from, from the prosecutor is the charging document, uh, some form of criminal complaint, indictment, whatever. You have to go through all the things that the person has been charged with with them, and you have to tell them what the possible consequences of those things are. And so I'll give you, here's an example. I represented a, a young woman once in a case she was in custody, and I'm going to go back in time a little bit in the way that the California courts used to be organized. When I first started in California, they had a much more decentralized court system. So this was in the San Joaquin Valley. I was responsible, although I was based in Fresno, for covering a court in a place called Colinga, which is Colinga is a small town on Interstate 5 at the southern edge of Fresno County, a good over an hour drive from Fresno where the main court was located. But what happens in Colinga is you get that at that time is we got a lot of prison related cases there because there's a big state prison out in that area called Pleasant Valley State Prison. My client was a uh, the geography of this matters when I get into it in a minute. My client was a young woman with no criminal history. In fact, I later learned that this woman had had probably the most horrific life of any person I've ever encountered, starting with the fact that when she was an infant, she was found out in a farm field in freezing weather, almost dead, next to the bodies of her parents who had been murdered in that field. That was how her life started. Wow. And so you can imagine where it went from there, going through the the foster system and the state system. Oh, and, poor thing! I mean, the nightmare life that this young woman had had. So she had she was being prosecuted for carrying heroin into the prison for her boyfriend, who was in prison on a second strike felony. He was a hardcore gang member, lifetime criminal, who was in on a, a second strike violent offense. So she carried this heroin in her her child's stroller or bassinet or whatever she was carrying. She was carrying the baby in some type of yeah you know, these things. Um and they had she had gone in with a woman who was the uh, who was actually had a lot of criminal record, who was the girlfriend of another one of these like gang member types in prison, and they had put the heroin in the baby basket of this woman, presumably because she had no record. I think they figured if she got caught it would yeah. be the, the least amount of consequences. So they had, when I first met her, she was in custody, in chains, and terrified. Okay? She had a baby that she needed to take care of. She'd never been in trouble before. She was terrified. They charged her with, this is how detailed the, the, the California Penal Code is. They had charged her with transportation of narcotics between non-contiguous counties 
which is a very specific charge. Oh my gosh. That carries- wow. So you had to go through a third county? That's the new right, one? It, right, exactly. So there's a, a, a more severe criminal penalty for right. that because it's non-contiguous counties. Oh my God. Now, the problem is she had traveled from Fresno in Fresno County to Colinga in Fresno County. Now, the way the highway goes, if you understand the oh. geography of that area, <laughs> you pass through Kings County yeah. during part of that drive. You right, actually leave Fresno little, County. A little there's dog a little leg that sticks County, in there. Yeah, yeah, that sticks into the But even so, these are not non-contiguous counties. <laughs> they are contiguous counties. It is oh, yeah. impossible. Yeah. It's impossible to go from Fresno to Colinga yeah. and travel through a non-contiguous county unless you took some right. crazy circuitous circuitous yeah. route, which is not what they did. So it was a blatant overcharge. The prosecutor knew it, but the judge that we had at that time in Colinga was, I mean, by I can't put it in any other terms that he was a hanging judge. I was just thinking, like, was he a hanging? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he threw everybody. Everybody who showed people were terrified to go to that court. He threw everybody in court wow. over all in jail. I mean. So at that time, the Fresno County Jail was very overcrowded. So unless you were somebody that was really a problem, you would be released in your own recognizance for almost anything, including multiple failures to appear. This guy, everybody got remanded into custody. So on a side note, to give you an idea what this judge was like, the DA at that time in Fresno County had a practice of charging all of the, the deadbeat daddy failure to pay child support cases out in the Colinga court because it's an over an hour away, it's in the middle of nowhere, there's one bus that goes there from Fresno. So if you can't drive, it's very hard to get there and back. Well, all these deadbeat daddies have lost their driver's license because that's the first thing that happens when you don't pay your child support. Really? If they take your driver's license. That's ridiculous. So they, How are you supposed to work? And it's irrelevant, right? Uh, yeah. The, the irony of depriving <laughs> people who aren't paying child support of a basic means of being able to earn a living is a whole different it's subject. It's like debtors' of how we prison, enforce, yeah. Right, okay. of how we enforce how we enforce child support laws by rendering these people financially unviable. Yeah. And by the way, making them work for cash under the table that you can never collect. Right. But right. Anyway, they oh used to God. charge them. They used to charge them out in Kalinga, and they did it on purpose because they knew there was probably an eighty yeah. percent chance they would not make their Just first. Just get a court judgment appearance. from default, right? No, no, like they can't default you in a criminal case. But what happens is you get a failure to appear. Oh. And they knew that what this judge would do is when they finally showed up, they'd have a failure to appear on this record. And this judge, if you failed to appear once, he would remand you into custody. Wow. So then what happens, you'd get thrown into, into you'd be taken into custody by the sheriff's department, by the bailiff. They'd put you in the Colinga, little Colinga jail that they had, and then they would transport you to Fresno, and you'd spend at least a night, if not a couple of nights, in Fresno County Jail before you turned up in court in Fresno, where a judge would almost certainly release you on your own recognizance. But it was to intimidate you into pleading guilty just so you could get out of jail, and, and just to punish these people because they thought they were bad people. I actually personally put an end to that practice, wow. which is a whole different story that I won't, I won't get into or we can get into later. Um, yeah, almost. It was an odd moment where a judge offered to, to financially sanction a district attorney personally for prosecutorial misconduct because of a motion that I filed. But anyway, back to back to my my prison case. So this lady gets busted, and they charge her for transporting narcotics between non-contiguous counties, a charge they cannot possibly prove. 
So I talked to the DA in court and I'm like, look, this lady's got no record. She has a child. Like, let's just agree to stipulate to release her on her own recognizance. You got to withdraw this stupid charge. You know, you can't prove it. I mean, your own police report says she drove from Fresno to Colinga. There's no non-contiguous county there. It's not possible. Like, let's let's deal with this case within the bounds of rationality. I understand you got to charge her because she did smuggle drugs into the prison, and that's a felony. And okay, we'll deal with that. But let's let's get through this arraignment and get her out of custody, and then we'll figure out what to do about this. And you were you know, a public I- defender at the time. Uh-huh. Were you unique in your desire to actually help your clients? No, I mean, I would say the public defender, from my experience, public defender's offices break down a couple of different ways. You have people who don't give a crap at all, and they're just putting in time and waiting to get a pension. You have people who genuinely care about the clients and really have a passion to try to force the system to work the way that it's supposed to with some sense of justice and fairness. You also have people who are politically motivated to rise to the bureaucracy of the county. They want to become supervisors and you know work their way up up the chain of the the county bureaucracy. And then the last category is there are some people that just get off on the adrenaline of trials. Wow. And love being in front. Of, they love the performance aspect. We had one guy. Whenever he would get so jazzed, whenever he had a jury trial, he'd like he'd be there with like Keith Whitener and he'd get his hair cut, like, wore a nice like he'd love the performance. He just at the adrenaline rush of being in trial huh. in front of a jury was like fun for him. Oh, that feels terrifying like, to me. I was so he, and the, you want to do you want to do jury trials? Like, there's no better place than public defender. You get jury trial, you know, you do more trials there than anywhere else. Oh, I thought it was so, like all plea bargains and no trials. Not if you talk the client. Not if you talk the client out of it, and then not if you do the serious cases, which is what he did, right? Somebody's facing 150 years in prison; they're going to go to trial. There's Got no it. plea bargain way out of. When the plea bargain offer is life, the guy's going to go to trial, <laughs> yeah. right? So, right. Um, it's not funny. So, but I. So it- he would. He would do. He. So he pushed his way into doing the most serious cases in the office just so he could do trials. And he'd come back from court and be like, "Oh, hey, how'd your trial go?" He'd go, "Ah, guy got convicted. He's looking at 100." 30 years. Hey, where do you want to go for lunch? Yeah, you know, the, I mean, like he was totally unaffected the by any of it. The dead, but the surgery was whereas, a success. Whereas me, I was always worried about what happened to these people. Of course. Like I was trying to stall, fix it. So there's, there's a variety of different people, but there certainly were plenty of people I met there who genuinely cared about the clients. The ones who can last are the ones who can separate themselves from the inevitable emotional consequence that comes from caring about these people. You have to have this ability to cut yourself free of those emotions, which I couldn't do, which is why I didn't last. Um, but uh, uh, at, at any rate, the district attorney, knowing where we were and what courtroom we were in, just laughed at me. It was like, no, nope, you, you want to do something with this? Plead or not guilty. You make your own argument to the judge about letting her out, whatever. I don't care what you do, but you're not getting any help from me. And I'm not going to admit that this charge is not well-founded. Uh What's the plea bargain offer? The plea bargain offer was plead guilty to everything. Okay, well, you're not taking that plea bargain, okay? And that's what happens when you have these unreasonable judges is you don't get any real offer at the first appearance. So I go and talk to this lady. I explain what's going on. These are very serious charges. I say, look, if you plead not guilty today, your next court appearance will be in Fresno. We'll be away from this judge who's unreasonable, and we'll probably get a different prosecutor there, and and we'll see what we can do. I'm going to try to get you out of jail today so you can at least go home. Uh, she has no money, so there's no bail that she can post. 
So it's purely her own recognizance. So I get up and do my song and dance for the judge. Judge, she has no prior criminal record. She has no history at all. Never even had a traffic ticket. She has an infant at home. Um, she was clearly under the influence of much more serious people in this case. If you look at the records of the other people in this case, and she's got ties to the community, she's got nowhere to go. She's got no one in the world, right? Anywhere like, yeah, the fact that she has no money means she can't pay bail, but she's also not a flight risk. Right. Where is she going to go? How is she going to get anywhere? She doesn't have a car. She doesn't have anything. And I said, so I, and I argued that, um, uh, the chart, the most serious charge against her was this transportation between non-contiguous counties, which on its face could not be proven. The judge looked at me and said, well, I appreciate what you're saying, counsel, but I'm really concerned about this transportation between non-contiguous counties, so I'm not letting her out. <laughs> she stays in. And they left her in jail. So she got to marinate in jail for a, a few days until her next court appearance in the main courthouse in Fresno. Who had her baby? At- no, she, uh, some, somebody that she knew was taking right, care okay. of her. Yeah, I mean, that had been the case since she had been arrested. So somebody was caring for the child in the interim, and I was able to ultimately get her out and get the case resolved in Fresno. But by the time she showed up at Fresno, she had no stomach for any kind of fight at all. Wow. And what ended up happening, actually, the conclusion of that case was very interesting. Her boyfriend, the two-striker, the weirdest thing about the case is he was like a couple of weeks from getting released. <sighs> having served his full sentence when this all went down. And what I found out happened was somebody in the prison basically threatened him that if he thought he was going to walk out of prison, he was sorely mistaken. He had let somebody, he had made a mistake and let somebody know he had this girlfriend with no record on the outside. And they basically told him, you get her to bring dope into the prison or the only way you're going to leave this prison is under a sheet. And so he pushed wow. her to bring the drugs in under threat of death from yeah. some kind of prison gang thing. And he ended up, we we ended up making a deal. I actually went and met with him and he told me, that's where I learned all this. He said, you get her out of this. This wasn't her. It was me. He said, I will plead guilty to whatever they oh, want no, me to plead a third guilty strike. to. I will plead guilty to whatever they want me to plead guilty to if you get all the charges against her dismissed. So I went to the DA and said, Look, he's the guy you really want. He's the bad oh, one. He's got no. all the record. Because I got it. My job is to take care of her, not him. <sighs> like, I'm her lawyer. Not yeah, his lawyer. yeah, yeah. You have a faith duty to do that right that's yeah I'm, i have a responsibility to yeah. do that anything else would be would be a breach of ethics on yeah. my part right and i said i said and i told him the story because there's no attorney client privilege there because he's not my client right and i said look uh to the da i said look the what what's going on here is he will plead guilty to everything if you let her go so let her go oh now his public defender was privy to all of this. He was there in the meeting that I had with him because I couldn't meet with him alone. He had, a, he had his own lawyer. And it, that was how the meeting got set up is his public defender said, hey, my client won't cooperate with me or do anything with me unless I get him a meeting with you. Wow. Because he was hell bent on saving her. And he, you know, over his lawyer's objection, he pled guilty to everything they charged oh. him with. Oh, he's probably um, still in jail. Yeah, no, he was third strike. He got life out of that. 
25 to life. And with his record, he wasn't getting out. How old was he? Uh, maybe late 30s, early 40s. Oh my God. He wasn't that old. Wow. Um, so it sounds like he had integrity. So I'm not saying that if he got back on the street, he wasn't going to go and be a gangbanger again. No, it, but he was one, I mean, one of the things you realize when you encounter these people is that some of the mythology of like people who are involved in gang life like this is that they really don't have any interest in doing harm to people who aren't involved in that world. Like it has a weird logic to yeah, it. Yeah, right. When when innocent bystanders get hurt by gang members, it's usually an accident and it's usually something they face consequences for amongst their own wow. people. Really? Like th they view it like a warfare thing and it's like a soldier killing a civilian. Right. It's not, it, they'll kill. Uh, thug life is uh, grossly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll kill each other viciously and yeah, they'll yeah. rob and steal from each other and they'll, that's they'll enforcement. Harm that's law enforcement for them. Yeah. I mean, it, it has, again, it has a weird set of rules yeah. and logic. Um, you know, if you get robbed by somebody on the street, chances are it's a random junkie, not somebody who's involved in the in the whole like gang yeah. world because it brings out heat on them you know every time these like there's some horrible like drive-by shooting and a child yeah. gets shot that just brings more heat on yeah, them no, they they're businessmen they're businessmen right? operating in a place with a, an area with super profits because of the prohibitions right and and law enforcement doesn't care if they kill each other like law enforcement will cut them slack if they kill or oh, assault wow. each other i wonder have you ever gotten an insight into crime stats where if you look at this, like, oh, there's 30, there's 30,000 gun deaths, you know, and a lot of the, like half of those are suicides. Some of them are defensive. Um, a lot of them are domestic. And then I wonder how many are, you know, criminal on criminal things, reducing like this idea of mass shootings or even accidents to like a rounding error potentially. Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at how they define mass shootings, the yes, whole definition of that people think people think it's like the, the you know the the, the Columbine yeah. type scenario. Yeah. When their definition of mass shooting is so broad that it captures all of these like gang shootings in Chicago, yeah. it's like and, two people you yeah. don't know. It's something like that. Like they call it, yeah. you know, two people you don't I mean, know the, had to have died. The, the the stats the stats are are highly highly yeah. manipulated. Yeah. Um, but I just know, wonder, like I've heard that if you look at just actual crime a lot of it falls into those categories where you would expect and my only point is this there that thug life whatever is likely just the adaptation to the black market that you just oh absolutely you, yeah you I mean, build a jail and yeah. give like gradations of you, you break somebody's legs if they don't pay you if they still don't pay you you kill them like there is no lockup <laughs> you know there's well, no garner garnishing wages yeah, I mean, if someone doesn't pay you for heroin, you can't go to court and sue them. Yeah. So what do you do? You, yeah. you know, you beat or shoot them. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, the, th that's why the black market is vicious. It all, yeah. There's very, what I learned is that there's very little crime that doesn't have a logical right. Motive that's my to question. It. Yeah, like random crime is not really much of a thing. If all we had was random yeah. crime, we'd all feel really, really safe, right? Because most murders, if they're not financially motivated or you know from some type of criminal activity. Most murders are people that know each other and most yeah. common is in relationships. Almost, you yeah. Know, and then either, yeah. there's almost none that are first time. Like someone buys a gun, they're like waiting periods. It's like there's a basically no unjustifiable homicide that's some guy never had a gun before, picks up a gun and kills somebody. There are, they are, there are, they are there. Like Nikki Goser's story for my listeners know her husband was shot to death in front of her by her stalker 
and I think it was his first gun crime. But generally speaking, if you read the stats there, yes, it's it's pursuant to a criminal life, et cetera. Yeah. Or there's, a, you know, even in the stalking scenario, somewhere along the way, somebody didn't intervene with what was an escalating yeah, scenario. That's right. He didn't. The first day that he was right. that she caught his attention, he didn't pick up a gun and shoot her. It escalated over time and there was opportunity to intervene before yeah it it, her case is pretty crazy uh yeah but, she, but even that she even that's a relatively unusual very unusual yes and as a matter of fact she's the executive director of the crime research prevention center and she knows how rare it is but her her idea she advocates for gun rights especially for victims of domestic abuse and that kind of thing because that's when they, they need start, guns more yeah they yeah, need guns they, more than anyone right and then if they if you have if you're under mental duress because somebody's stalking you that can prohibit you from getting a gun when all you really need is the gun so she just she has such an unusual case but it points out that you know you can't just have these blanket rules you have to give empower people to defend themselves is her point but yes yeah, so, so the crime stuff you've had an insight said okay so this guy pled to stuff that he was actually guilty of, correct? He probably pled to charges that were more severe than what he yeah. was guilty yeah. of. Mm-hmm. And he left himself wide open for a horrific sentence because of this incentive that he had. A lot of the three strikes law, how it operated in real life was, and I handled a lot of those cases, you would do plea bargain negotiations to get rid of strikes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I had a guy once who... um was looking, I think it was a second or third strike. It might have been a third strike offense. And anyway, he would be a guy who'd been a drug addict, heroin addict his whole life. So he'd been involved in all kinds of criminal stuff. Well, one of the things that happened with the three strikes law, which is an interesting ex post facto argument, is if you had a crime on your record that was a strike, that, that had the three strikes law existed at the time that you were convicted of that crime, they could use it as a strike against you in the present. So way back in the Whoa, day, people... that's not okay. <laughs> no, it's not okay. The court said it was okay, which I mean, will get into like Marbury v. Madison. like unconstitutional. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, well, yeah, but there, there's your Marbury v. Madison it could, yeah, conversation we'll have later. In a post-Marbury world, in a post-Marbury right. misinterpretation world, which but, we're going to get to. So this guy, one of his strikes, he had pled guilty in like the 1970s to... Wow, um, that's an nuts. Assault. An assault with a baseball bat, right? Which at a time it was at the time was probably he was offered a plea bargain. Hey, it's assault, but they're not going to give you much time yeah. or whatever. And he's thinking to himself, "Oh, there's no okay. I'll just plead to that thing and I'll move on." Right? He's not trying to keep a clean record. Like he's a long-term heroin addict. His record's screwed anyway. Right? Doesn't care um, about the distinction between a felony and a misdemeanor because eventually it just gets you know whatever. Well, especially especially the first the way this three strikes law was written is the first two had to be on this list of serious or violent felonies right okay it wasn't any felony okay now they kept they kept expanding that list over time yes but what that was was penal code 245 a1 which is assault with a deadly weapon that's a serious violent that's yeah yeah violent yeah felony, right right and then he had some other serious felony on his record again from a long time ago and then for the last couple of decades it was all little you know Drugs. petty theft you know little drug stuff but nothing very serious well he and a young drug addict friend of his had the genius idea that they were going to rob one of these, you know, these cigarette stores that their convenience stores sell nothing but tobacco. Yeah. So smoke it was shop. in a, yeah, it was in a neighbor, but it was all, but it was not a smoke shop, like a bong shop. It was a smoke shop. Like right. 
cigarette store. Like, right, and they you know, sell cigarettes loose for less. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, cigarettes for less or whatever in some Got crappy it. neighborhood. Yeah. So the whole thing it had you know glass front, but it had a big metal cage mm-hmm. right that they close shut at night so they don't get robbed. So he and this this guy that he was with had this genius idea of they could break into this store. And what they did was they stole a pickup truck. And then they took the pickup truck across the street from the smoke shop and reversed at as high a speed as they could build up and backed into the cage to try to smash through the cage and get into the store. The problem, this is such a, a, a drug addict crime. The problem <laughs> is what happened is the cage is here truck backs into the cage and the tail of the truck the bed of the truck lifts up and the cage bent around the truck lifting the drive wheels of the truck trapped it off of the ground and it can't get out so as you can imagine the the store was on the corner of a residential neighborhood it made a horrific sound i mean i can't imagine how loud this must have been and so everybody in the neighborhood immediately calls 911 and these away as the run away on foot as the police show up and they get apprehended it's a burglary a burglary is this third felony for this guy it's any felony is the third one. First two have to be serious or violent third one is mm-hmm. any felony so all of a sudden for this idiot burglary where he's unarmed at night nobody's in the store nobody was at risk he's looking at 25 to life a guy who I wouldn't necessarily say was harmless, but as a drug addict, he was fairly harmless. To, really, the person he was most dangerous to was himself. Yeah, or like his mom when he's robbing her bank, her uh, purse. <laughs> yeah. 20, no, it you know, sounds look, like he's, I, you know, was willing a, to do bad business. things. He committed a crime. He yeah. probably deserved some punishment for yeah, that. Right. 25 to life for that? Really? Yeah. Punishment so is not go, crime. So you go back and you leave. The way those things go is you go back with the prosecutor. They, they charge it as a third strike. You know, you tell the guy, I'm sorry, you're looking at 25 to life. Now he's terrified. You go back in the chambers with the judge and the prosecutor and the judge says, okay, well, if you guys work something out, what I'll be willing to do is we'll strike one of the strikes. We'll just throw out one of the strikes and then he can plead to it uh, a- a- as, you know, uh, a felony after a first strike, which isn't great because you're going to get prison time for that and you get less time credits. You have to do like, if you are a strike on your record, first strike on your record, normally you, at that at that time, I think it's even more lenient now. You used to get 50% time credits as long as you behaved yourself. Every day counted as two days towards your sentence. Wow, okay. Um, it, but if you had a strike at that time, you had to serve 85% of your time. So normally you'd have to send, the default was you'd serve 50% of whatever you got sentenced with. After a first strike, you have to serve 85%. But it's great to have the 50% thing because that's such a strong incentive to behave yourself. <laughs> and that was part of the idea behind the third strike laws. They wanted the first strike to have some penalty to it, that you'd spend more time in prison if you did anything else, even if it wasn't a violent felony. Um, whatever you got convicted of, if you went to state prison, you'd be spending 85% of your time there rather than 50%. So he pled to it with the, with the first strike, and he got, I don't know, three, four years in prison of which he was going to have to do 85%. And that, but, but the reason this guy pled to it and had so little leverage in those plea bargain negotiations is they had him on the felony, right? They had him. Yeah. The, the, the truck is there, the car. Yeah. The, I mean, there's no question that he committed this felony and now he's looking at 25 to life. See, I feel like those third strike laws are unconstitutional. 
that you have a right to a jury trial, like on a case by case basis, that that brings in other well, acts. They have to they have to prove up the strikes in front of a jury. They have to prove that the strikes are I actually know, but, strike offenses. But I mean, even prior bad acts, stuff like that should not you know, like you you shouldn't get a heavier like it, it, maybe it's just illogical to me, but I really feel like we constitutionally you're really supposed to be judged on the mens rea and actus rea of the case that you're charged with in front of that jury trial at that time. Like, I feel like this stuff is doesn't fall into that category. You, do you agree with that? Well, or just yeah, I, say? I think there's a good argument to be made there. And I think the case that actually makes that argument best of all is O.J. Simpson. When O.J. Simpson got in trouble in Nevada for robbing a guy and taking his suit back. Right. It wasn't a, burglary because he thought it was no, his it, and it was his. But well, he, he it, was a, it was it, no, it, it, it was a robbery. Right. But it not a burglary. A burglary, right. a burglary is when you break into somebody's home or business. You have to break into a building for it to be a burglary. A robbery is the taking of property that's not yours by force. No, but don't you but, remember, like, isn't burglary, doesn't it have to be something that you did not think was yours? That even if it was all the same, if you thought it was yours, it's something different. Well, that goes to the specific, the, uh, the mens rea for the crime. You have to have right, the, okay. the, you have that, to have the intent to take, he, right. He did not have. Well, I think it's questionable whether he really thought it was his or not. Okay. But, but either way, he was convicted of it. Right. And- he was sentenced to a prison term that was way, <laughs> way, way out of bounds right. for what that actual crime was, right. right? Like, you know, basically intimidating someone into giving you a suit that yeah. was theirs. How serious of, of, of a robbery is that? You know, he wasn't armed. I mean, it wasn't, it was just a strong arm robbery, basically. Right. He got sentenced because yeah. he killed his wife yes. and got away with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what he got. To, and by the way, that's why he got out of prison. He actually didn't serve his whole term because eventually as he wound his way through the appellate system, uh, yeah. he won an appeal on exactly those grounds. Like, you yeah. can't sentence me for a thing that I didn't get convicted of. Like, yeah. You're sentencing me to more because I'm OJ and you think I killed my wife, not because of what actually happened here. So I tend to agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, I like sentencing enhancements. Right. Like I think some, like I always thought they, they have a, a 1020 life law, or at least they did in, at that time in California, which I always thought was a really good idea, uh, which was if you used a firearm in the commission of a felony, it automatically added 10 years. If you fired that firearm in the commission of the felony, 20 years. And if someone was injured by that firearm, life. Yeah. And because I think, that's a I think, powerful deterrent. Right, I think heavy consequences for the misuse of firearms. I agree. Yes, and even if it's not a deterrent, even if it doesn't yeah. deter people, um, I think just firearms. You know, and I'm somebody who's very, I'm extremely supportive of gun rights, but I also think a gun, owning a gun, is a serious responsibility. Yes, I totally and agree. It should be taken as a serious responsibility. And a car too, drunk driving. Don't tell me oh, I yeah. can't drink or drive. But if I drink and drive, I sh you should go to jail for a long time. Like you're making a decision. But they oh, kept raising the, the drinking age. And it's like, don't raise the drinking age. Just make the penalty for an actual infraction high. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I hated it, as a public defender, I did so many DUI cases. And again, in a county where our jail was overcrowded, yeah. very few people got any jail time for a first or second DUI. Right. There was always some way around it. You know, that you... 
very few people uh, ever paid those consequences. By the way, I love the idea for drunk drivers to ignition interlock device where you have to blow to a breathalyzer to start your car. Yeah. I think that's a great that's a great penalty. And in this county, Fresno County, they got actually got in trouble with the state because it's mandatory on a second DUI and they were they gave it to no one. No yeah. one. That should be mandatory on a first DUI. Yeah, because it's a perfect deterrent. Now we have a question from Clint. Is there a level of punishment that deters crime or are many people just too dumb or careless for it to make any difference? Do people not are they is it is deterrent real or is it not? Well, I think deterrent is real for some people and not other people. I mean, you're never going to have a crime rate that's zero. Right. But I think it is valuable. I think deterrents do work for some people. I'll use that 1020 life law as an example. If you have a highly publicized deterrent like that, that, hey, if you commit a crime with a gun, you're going to get an automatic 10 years added to your sentence. If you pull the trigger, it's going to be 20. And if you hurt somebody, it's going to be life. And you publicize that. It may not deter everybody who would commit a gun crime, but if it deters the person who would otherwise shoot one of my loved ones, then it's worth it. I mean, if it deters one person. Yeah, yeah. right. And there's no real harm in it because they're doing and something very wrong. If somebody is going to treat firearms recklessly, they should pay a heavy price for it. Like, I think Alec Baldwin should be looking at heavy prison time. Yes, instead of heavy blaming other time. people. Instead of blaming other people, like... The gun was in your hand. You pointed at someone and pulled the trigger. And that person ended up dead. Right. Like, that's the kind of thing yeah. that, you know, again, it's so weird in our gun control society. Like, all these yeah. leftists, they love they love gun control. Right. But they're like, you know, go easy on Alec Paul. Yes. Wait. They don't understand do we... that it's personal responsibility with right. respect I'm like, to I'm like, no gun control. But if you screw up and somebody ends totally. up dead. Right. Throw the book at you. It's the a priori thing. That's not the American way. But I want to... so. I want a, a last word on plea bargains, and then I want to go to Marbury v. Madison. So what do you think should be the approach to plea bargains? Should be they, and I want to just say as a libertarian, I've always said, well, you should be able to do whatever you want. If you There's no such thing as inalienable rights. You should be able to alienate your rights. You should be able to give it up. But I feel like this is when I use my expression, libertarians die by the sword, but they don't live by it. The cards are stacks in the favor of the government which abuses their power and coerces people into uh, pleading to things that they didn't even do and i would say if you eliminated the ability for plea bargains to be agreed upon then the system would would have to reform itself well all right i'm going to be candid here and i hope i don't hurt your feelings when i say this but I have great disdain for libertarianism <laughs> Okay. Um, because I think libertarianism is like the adult version of believing in Santa Claus. Okay. It, it just, I, I don't think it has any, any, I think there's a any... spectrum and I have to say um, that I do, I am open to, this is my ideology but, is, uh, it, I don't think, it's a baseline, but I understand where you come from. Get, I don't think plea bargains should be allowed. Not because you're taking away the defendant's right to engage in a plea bargain. You're taking away the government's power to coerce plea bargain. Nice. Yeah. That's you're restraining government power. You're not restraining some right. individual right. You're actually enforcing the individual right. If you want to put this person in prison, if right. it's important enough to the government to put this person in prison, yeah. then you will have to take the time and the energy and the resources to put that person 
in prison after convicting them in front of a jury, you will take the time of 12 citizens to sit in that room. Yeah. And those jurors and the courtroom time is more precious than you know. We used to, we used to, when I was in misdemeanor court, I think it was Thursday was like our trial day when we would declare what cases were ready to go to trial. And every, every Thursday we'd put a stack of files up on the judge's counter for the judge to call those cases for us to say whether or not that case was going to go to trial. We used to get lots and lots of misdemeanor domestic violence cases. Misdemeanor domestic violence cases are cases where there's no visible injury. Okay. Where there's been some sort of violence, but no visible injury. I used to tell people all the time, don't ever plead guilty to a misdemeanor domestic violence case. Just don't, 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 don't do that. Because one after another, we ready to go to trial. District attorney dismissed, dismissed, dismissed because they never have the cooperation of the victims in those cases. Ever. Right. Not ever. Not ever. And we, a so lot of times I've known people who both parties get in trouble. I think I know three different people where the wife called and both parties got in trouble. The husband and the wife both got charged. So let me give you, I'm going to give you two short plea bargain stories that tell, that tell you why I'm so opposed to plea bargains. One's a really ugly one. So um, there's a law that prohibits in California that makes it a misdemeanor to, to be in possession of a stolen shopping cart. Okay, so like grocery lobbyists, grocery, big grocery company lobbyists got this law passed, right? Because what happens? Homeless people take their, their shopping carts and they push their belongings around in the shopping carts. That costs money to the grocery stores because they got to buy new, new shopping carts. So they passed this law that it's a misdemeanor to be in possession of a stolen shopping cart. Okay? The problem is, what's, you have an easy defense to that, right? I didn't steal the shopping cart. I found it by the side of the road. So every shopping, in order to convict somebody of this law, the shopping cart has to have the identity of the store that it came from and a phone number on it that you can call <laughs> to return it. <laughs> okay. Because their theory is we can convict somebody of stealing right. it if they knew where it was yeah. from and they didn't either return it physically or call to have it returned. Or just walk away. Or just walk away. Right. Right. One of, uh, you can't possess it, it because it's clear that it's been branded. Right. It's designed to create that it's, loophole. It's okay? branded. Yeah. I don't think there's ever been a jury trial in the history of California <laughs> on this law. Because here's what they would do. We had this happen in our courtroom. No, it no. drove me insane. Right? Grocery stores start agitating to the local government. You know, we're too many homeless people are taking our carts. And so the DA starts getting riled up on this stuff. And they start arresting homeless people for possession of a shopping cart. Your average average homeless person is walking around with God knows how many bench warrants at any given time for failure to appear in court because they get arrested all the time for little stuff that doesn't land them in jail. You know, peeing in public, drunk in public, drunken disorderly, disorderly conduct, vandalism, you know, little all these little things that are illegal, but they're not serious enough to take up a jail cell with these people until they stack up enough of these bench warrants on failures to appear. They've got, you know, 27 failures to appear in court. And then they hold them in court long enough to get them. They hold them in jail long enough to get them to the courthouse. So they turn up, they're in custody, they're sitting in the jury box in handcuffs. And you go over to them and you say, look, first of all, there's no shopping carts. Go look at your shopping carts in your local grocery store. There's no shopping carts that are correctly posted. No, no grocery store has ever taken the time to put those signs in their shopping carts. So it's impossible to convict somebody of this crime. So you go to the guy and you say, look, you've been arrested for possession of a stolen shopping cart. I've looked at the evidence. They don't even have the shopping cart in, in, in evidence. <laughs> like they can't, 
they cannot convict you. Right. You should you should not plead guilty to this because you are innocent and there is a zero percent chance that they can convict you. And he says, so I think you should plead not guilty today. Well, what happens if I plead not guilty? Well, I'm going to ask the judge to let you out of jail pending your trial. And I'll tell you, you've missed a lot of court dates. Chances are pretty good the district attorney is going to say, judge, if you let him out of trial, he's not going to come back. Because look at how many court dates he's missed. Well, what are my other options? Well, I do have to inform you of the plea bargain offer that the prosecutor has made to you. You've been arrested six times for peeing in public. You've been arrested four times for, for drunk in public. You've got all these arrests out there where you never showed up for court. And it's a misdemeanor to fail to appear in court so they can prosecute for all that stuff too. The prosecutor is saying that if you plead guilty today to the stolen shopping cart thing, they will give you credit for time served. You'll get out of jail today, and they'll dismiss everything else that's on your record. Okay. But I don't think you should do that because you're not guilty. <laughs> and they can't prove that you're guilty. And they say, I don't care what you think. I want to go home today. Yeah. I want to be back out on the streets. Yeah. I don't want to be here. I'm not going to wait in jail for another 10 days for another court appearance, and then another you know, two weeks to get, get a trial date. Right. Screw you. I'm pleading guilty and I'm going home. And then I would stand up and say, your honor, my client wants to plead guilty over my objection. I can't stop him from doing that, but I'm not going to participate in the plea ceremony. It's all ceremony they do when they take the plea. Oh, yes. And as, as the attorney, you don't think that, if you think somebody's pleading guilty to something they didn't do, yeah. you, have, you have to remove yourself wow. from that and say, I won't do it. So do homeless people ever plead guilty just for three squares and a cot? No, I've never seen that happen. Got it. No, they plead guilty to get out. Right. Okay. They don't want to be in there because they want to be getting drunk and getting high. And they can't do that in jail. Because sometimes I feel like it might be a little break if you could go to jail for a little while. Or you know. it's not a break. minor they, injury puts you in the hospital for a weekend. Okay. <laughs> if you if you have any remotely left wing people in your audience, they're going to hate me for this. They are all addicts. Oh, really? The only thing, yes. The only thing they care. If you are not an addict and you find yourself without a home, there are plenty of services for you. Right. The reason they are on the streets is because they cannot take advantage of any of the services that are out there because they're yeah. intoxicated all the time. They can't stay in a shelter, but the shelter will not let you be in there if you're hired drunk. Yeah, and that's another thing with definitions. Like they're like, there's X amount of homeless children and that kind of thing. But homelessness uh, uh, by that definition includes things like your lease is up, you don't have a new apartment, and you're sleeping right. at your mother's house. Right. You know, now, like or, families. Or you're, or you're in a shelter. Yeah. Which you know right. happens all the time, where families end up in shelters all the time, but they are not without a roof over their head. They're not on the street. Go walk around in Hollywood sometime and look at the homeless people on the street. You're not going to see any kids. I did do a couple of shows on homelessness recently, and like it, we could get into that. And another thing I want to do is have a show with you on libertarianism, because we kind of okay. talked about that the first time we talked. But I would love to talk about ideology and the ideological well, journey. I absolutely would love to talk about that with you. I'm just putting do, it out we, there. Yeah, uh, sure. And we, and we can actually do libertarian uh, li libertarianism in conjunction with immigration, which after 25 years of practicing ag labor yeah. law, I would love to talk about immigration. That's great. And I wrote a very comprehensive article about what I called the libertarian immigration conundrum because whatever i'll let you read that before we get back to it so anyway, let's do that 
So well, you want to give me my other plea bargain story? Let me give you my other plea yeah. bargain story because it's the other side of the plea That's bargain right. argument. Yeah. Right? So that one is clearly the government is shaking people down and coercing people to satisfy moneyed interest because the district attorney can then say to the grocery store people, see, look at our statistics. We've gotten, you know, seven, 75 convictions in the last three months for stolen shopping carts. Pat us on the back <laughs> and now make a, make a campaign donation to the boss, right? Even though it doesn't change anything. Right. right, but they get, but then the the incumbent DA gets a campaign contribution from the grocery store people, and everyone feels better about themselves. Do the grocery Except, stores get their carts back? No, no one gets those carts back. <laughs> they don't even have the carts. They don't even the police, want them back. <laughs> no, the, no, they don't want them back. And when the police arrest the guy, they take him to jail and they leave the cart by the side of the road. They don't even have the evidence. Wait, you think they're putting? You think they're going to put a grocery cart in the evidence locker? They're not or doing in the, that. Or in the squad car. Or even again, when was the last time you saw a squad car with the trunk open and a, 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 a shopping cart hanging out the back of it? I mean, it's, it's stupid. The whole thing is stupid. So you you get that kind of pointless, silly thing happening in the criminal justice system for political and money purposes that serves no one. Okay, here's the other side of it that's that's also I think equally ugly. I represented a guy once on a second time DUI. Okay. This guy had gotten in a fight with his wife, went to a bar, started hammering down shots of tequila, staggers out of the bar, gets into his car. He, he drove home. I still don't even know how he did it, but he drove home and was literally bouncing off of like a pinball machine, bouncing off of parked cars on either side of the street as he swerved across the street, crashing into cars all the way home. They had a witness who was a teenage girl babysitting who was driving the kids that she had been babysitting. She had taken them to get ice cream and she was on her way home. And as he's careening through the neighborhood, almost hit them and was a near miss. Okay. So thank God it was a near miss. He parks his now bashed up truck. It was like one of these big work trucks. Did you ever dry- see Wolf of Wall Street? Mm, I haven't seen that one. Oh my gosh. My favorite scene is when he has this like Lamborghini or something. And he's like, yeah, we ate a bunch of quaaludes, but I drove home masterfully. It was great. And he comes out in the morning and his Lamborghini is like a crumpled piece of paper. (laughs) Well, that's what this truck looked like. Yeah. So he parks the truck in his driveway and goes into his house. The the, The babysitter called the cops and they follow the trail of destruction from the bar to his house. They knock on the door. His daughter's there. His daughter answers the door. She said, they say, hey, we're, you know, whose truck is that? Oh, it's my dad's. Well, where is he? He's in the backyard. They walk around the house. They go through the gate into the backyard. And he's sitting there at a picnic table in his backyard with his head in his hands. He looks up. He sees the cops. And he just reaches out for the handcuffs. Oh, my God. Okay. Good. So they put the hand, they put the handcuffs on him. California has a DUI enhancement if your blood alcohol is above 0.20. Okay. That's pretty drunk. You figure 0. 0.40 is dead. Wow. So wow. Point, 0.08 is illegal. 0. 0.40 is dead. 0. 0.20, you get this enhancement. And he blew like a 0. 0.27 or a 0.28. Wow. Or so he was drunk. Wow. I mean, drunk. Tell like I said, I don't know how he walked to the car, much less drove Yeah, him. wow. Well, he was adamant. So this is a, not only is this a second time DUI, it's a bad second time DUI where he almost hurt a babysitter and two little kids you know, there, but for the grace of God, those people would have been hurt badly. Okay. Right. He refused to plead guilty. They offered him, you know, DUI sentencing is all the pleas and DUIs are all standardized. You plead guilty, you get the standard DUI sentence. 
very rarely can you do anything with the DUI as, except just plead to it and get the, the standard deal. So he refused because he had just gotten a job with the city parks department. And if he got a second time DUI, his license was going to get suspended and he would lose this good job he had just got. So he refused to plead to it. I honestly didn't relish the idea of doing a jury trial. I was not one of those people who got off on the jury trial process. And I didn't want to do a jury trial for a guy that I knew was guilty and do all that work knowing that he was going to get convicted. And frankly, he was kind of an asshole. Yeah. Yeah, and he deserved to, to be punished for it. And he should have just taken the deal because the deal was better than what... Because you go to trial, they'll punish you worse. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, And so he refused. So I kept dragging the case out. I just kept c- continuing it and continuing it and continuing it. The district att- her attorney who was assigned to our courtroom who had this case had twins during this period of time. So she comes back from maternity leave and this case is still there. Oh well, my she god! Had, she she had she had two infant twins at home. Yeah. And the last thing in the world she wanted to do was like a five day jury trial. Yeah. On this clown, we had the judge went on vacation. Our regular judge went on vacation, and they brought in this retired guy to be like a temporary judge. So he doesn't care. He's just having a good time. And we all go back in chambers, and this guy gets the deal of the century. He pleads to a wet reckless, which is alcohol-related reckless driving. It's what they get you for. Like, if you blow, like, a .08, you know, there's enough margin for error in yeah. in the, the BAC that they have a risk that, that you're not going to get convicted because you can show that they can't really say for, with any certainty that you're over .08 if you're right at that line. So they have this thing, alcohol-related reckless driving, which is reckless driving, but as part of the sentence, you have to go to, like, a 12-hour class on why you shouldn't drink and drive. So this guy had, he was charged with second time DUI and two counts of hit and run. Okay. They, the D, the DA didn't understand how this works. When you, you, you get points on your license on the California system when you plead to these traffic related offenses. She thought it would be two points for the DUI, two points for the wet, for each one of the counts of hit and run, and he would lose his license even if he didn't plead guilty to DUI. What she didn't understand, and again, I'm his lawyer, so I can't correct her on this, you only take the high, the points for the highest point offense. It's only the points for a single offense. So he took the two points for the reckless driving and no points for the two counts of hit and run. That was for cars that he had hit and not stayed at the scene on, right. on, his, right. on his destruction back to the house. So he pled guilty to a wet reckless, two counts of hit and run and they dismissed the DUI altogether. I got back to the office that day and he was waiting for me after I got out of court in the reception area of our office. He had already gone to DMV and gotten his license restored. Oh you, don't lose, you don't lose your license for that because there's only two points and there's, it's not considered a, a DUI by, by DMV. And he's laughing at me in the reception area like because i had already i had told him i'm like this is bad man you got to make you know because the deal that he had on the table was plead to the second time dui and we'll dismiss the hit and runs and i'm like you're not going to get a better deal than you're going to get convicted of all of this if you go to trial and he's like see i told you i was smarter than you dumb lawyer basically was his thing may i predict that he got in trouble again at some point i don't know whatever happened to him i never never saw him again i saw him once at target in town uh, like a few months later, uh, didn't talk to him, but okay. So there, 
the two the reason I told you those two stories is one is the government coercing people who are absolutely the most desperate and weakened state in our society, these homeless yeah. drug addicts. Right. And coercing them for their own stupid political purposes that helps no one. On the other hand, here you have a guy who got leniency that he did not deserve or was not merited right. on a very serious case yeah. because of a magical confluence of events where you had a tired DA who was a new mom and a temporary judge who didn't give a crap. Right. And he gets a deal that was just, the only reason he got that deal was to save people work. Judge wanted to get right, the right. day in court over and go to the, the golf course. Mom wanted to just take care of her kids and not have to do a jury trial. Right. And right? that's what they say is wrong with plea bargains, but I think it's the other thing. It's that they get to rack up more convictions, not It's like, both. Yeah, right. It's both. It's both. Yeah. It's really both. And more importantly, it, it alleviates them from the responsibility of prioritizing what is it that is really worth subjecting to the criminal defense, the criminal justice system? Because I will tell you this about the criminal justice system that I that I learned as a public defender. Once that system touches you, yeah, the chances are very high it's going to touch you again, and it's going to be with you for the rest of your life. Ah. People, we used to call them uh, regular customers. People who get in, even in a, in a minor way, get in enmeshed in yeah. the criminal justice system, tend to stay enmeshed with it or tend to get tangled up with it again. It's very, it's relatively rare that somebody gets touched by the criminal justice system and then they just go on in their life and they never have contact with it again. That's exceedingly rare. I think of that because I'm the youngest of nine and I had the occasions when people would use me like to do stuff like that. My family had drug problems. Two of my siblings died in drug-related stuff. And uh, and I think to myself, if I had gotten in trouble for that stuff, my life would be totally different. My life would be like their lives. It might be. It may well be. You know, potentially. It may well be. Because you see that again and again and again with these people where it starts with what looks like a relatively minor misdemeanor. Yeah, when I was a kid. Like, I could have just, if, if I had gotten into serious trouble as a kid, like as a teenager, I I just can't imagine... I mean, because I dropped out of high school, I went to community college and I transferred to Harvard. I just feel like that path that got me out, you know, yeah, which I mean, is not an open to me. There's some type of barrier that gets broken that once it's broken, it yeah. can't be fixed. Probably and on so, both sides, their side when they look at you and your side when you look at the system. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, so it's a serious thing to bring criminal charges against somebody. Yeah. And I think that would be a weightier decision that would require more thought and more consideration of, do we really want to do this? Do we really need to do this? Yeah. If they knew that we only have X number of courtrooms, we can only summon so many jurors, we can only impanel so many juries, uh, we got to make sure we only go on the stuff that we really need to go on. And by the way, they'd be forced then to pass. They wouldn't be able to pass stupid laws like possession of a stolen shopping cart <laughs> because there's no way to enforce yeah. those laws. And you would have district attorneys associations going, stop passing more criminal yes. laws that we have. Right. To, we need to prosecute people for murder and right. child abuse and DUI and things that are really dangerous. Stop it with this nonsense. That's what I think. And uh, that's what I think would happen. And I also feel like that introducing people into the criminal justice system injustice whatever you want to call it i think that uh just 
it, it has to be true that race and economic status and where you're coming from and how you talk, all of that stuff has to play oh, into absolutely. how you're treated, how casually, you know, so maybe they didn't arrest me when I was involved in some of this stuff because, you know, I was an innocent looking and really in many ways, totally innocent, you know, young white girl in a middle class high school. And I was like, I didn't even, I don't know what's going on here, you know? And they were just like, yeah, we're not going to take her in because it wouldn't even be taken seriously. Probably. Oh, it looks stupid taking me in. But if I had been a black kid 100%. under the same circumstances, I mean, nobody would say. We had a couple of scenarios when that. I was a, a public defender. We had a couple of situations where this, the the local authorities decided they were going to prioritize these like lewd act cases. They, they, they prosecute them as, as indecent exposure cases, which is actually a registrable sex offense. But it's where they target gay men meeting for anonymous sex in like the bathroom of a public park. Okay. Um, so first of all, they don't ever bust like straight guys having sex with prostitutes in those same parks it's always gay men in the bathroom and it's it's always done through entrapment um it's really a, an ugly thing but which is terrible so the, you want to see the difference in how people get treated there were a few times where people who were charged in those cases we had the court calendar so we knew who was charged were like prominent members of the community or people with money and they would have a private attorney who would come in and they would actually go in the judge's chambers and they would get a diversion plea done in the judge's chambers, like off the record behind closed doors, so that this important or wealthy person would not have their name sullied in public. Wow. I had a client where wow. what they did was they don't ever arrest them on the spot. So they do the whole thing in the bathroom. Then my client comes out, gets in his car and goes home and thinks that everything's fine. Meanwhile, they photographed his license plate of his car. So they find out who he is. They came to his house and arrested him at house with at his house with a news van. He was on the evening news being taken out of his house in handcuffs. Wow. Why? Because he was poor. Yeah, that's messed up. And entrapment is like literally a sin. Like oh, yeah. leading that people into temptation. He goes, he goes, he goes I've just, been gay in Fresno my whole life. He's like, do you really think because his whole story to me was how this cop was like really aggressively approaching him and soliciting him. And he's like, yeah, he was right. Like, that's he's like, that's he's like, the problem with really Moral hazard. In Fresno. You're in California. You know what Fresno's like. He's like, he's like, you really think I'm going to yeah. like get involved in anything with a guy in a bathroom unless I, I know that he wants yeah, it? Yeah, I need I'm that. I'm going to get killed if I just approach some random person here. <laughs> and that was a really compelling argument to me. But you know what? They never go to trial because it's too humiliating to go to trial on that. They offer him diversion and they take it. And they threaten him with the registered sex offense thing. That's what they threaten him with. If you get convicted of this, you will register for life. You will register for life as oh, a sex wow. offender and everyone will think you're a pedophile. This is Monica. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Anthony about plea bargains. I always love my chats with Anthony. We continued talking and got into Marbury v. Madison and the overreach of the Supreme Court. The beginning of the end of the Constitution, if you ask me. But what does Anthony think? Find out in part two of our chat, posted in Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. And if it's not up yet on your favorite platform, try Deep Dives Premium on iTunes, where you can find all my shows commercial-free and usually early released. Part two with Anthony is definitely up on Deep Dives Premium right now.